Um, please stand. We're going to pray, read some scripture, and then enter into worship and song. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning to uh, be a part of your body that you've brought together. Um, we pray for uh, removal of distractions this morning from thoughts that uh, take away from your glory and take away from uh, focus on you. Pray that we'd hear your word and that we'd respond to it. I pray that we'd worship in uh, spirit and truth this morning. Pray that you would um, be with the sick this morning and that you would comfort them. And I pray that you would uh, just be with us as a body and be here that you, uh, you can be praised and be glorified. Um, we thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord. And we ask that you bless it. To Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this morning, um, I was getting ready to come up here and, I don't know, do whatever I do. And um, I was thinking about, it's a weird random thought, but how there was an earthquake in Haiti, there's an earthquake in Chile, earthquake in, earthquake in Taiwan, and how the whole earth groans for the coming back of Christ. And... I was thinking, man, we get to worship this morning, and the earth is worshiping. The earth is groaning in these big, uh, gigantic explosions, if you will. Um, and thinking about that, that we get to come here and sing, and, and how much more we get to sing because we have the hope of Christ, because God sent his son to pay for our sins, that we have eternity to worship God. And, and that moved me. And the first song we're going to sing this morning is All Creatures of Our God and King. And I was telling Scott about this, and he pointed out this verse right here. Um, just moments ago, and I think it's really cool to read before we sing this. It's Romans 8, um, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that, be, that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of his sons, for the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the fish fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we will be saved. Now hope that is not seen... Or sorry... Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for, but for, sorry, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord shall, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. These guys are a blessing. I hope that uh, hope we're enjoying. Hope y'all are enjoying the Lord through their ministry. It's uh, it's really a picture of excellence. I'm I'm blessed by it. Thankful that these guys treat every every Sunday like it's like it's the last one. Like the Lord could come back um, on Monday, and how would we spend our last moments together? I hope we all treat Sunday mornings like that. If you ever get in a spot where you're just getting your church on, if these guys ever get in a spot where they get their, just get their church on, you'll know it. Because you'll be like, man, that was lame. If I get in a spot where I get my church on, you'll know it. Because you'll be like, that, did he climb the mountain this week? You know you have a responsibility too to ready yourself for this time that we spend at the feet of the Lord. Thankful for those guys pouring themselves into that. It's a blessing. I uh, shared with Scott and the worship guys this morning, um, I don't know what's up, but I am not 100% this morning. And uh, I always wondered as a kid, what does a preacher do when he feels sick? He preaches unless he's, I guess, bleeding or throwing up or something. 
so I hope I don't throw up. And if I do, I'm, I'm not going to consult Scott Feasel on how to do that. <laughs> that is a good story. Mark Atkinson uh, said, hey, you got the baptism pool behind you. May you just slam your face into that. So. <laughs> Greatness, man. Uh, we are beginning in John 15, um, our, beginning our, our journey this morning uh, as home base is John 15. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, read the passage there, and then we're going to go on a journey together. I think what might, might be making me sick is John 15, to be honest with you. It is, it's not because it makes me sick. It's because it's hard work to engage it. And uh, I've not had a, a spot in preaching that's been as difficult to prepare as John 15 has been. But we need to work hard. It's worth eating, worth engaging. John 15, verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus, in the last hours before he goes to the cross... Uh, we don't know where he was. Maybe the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe they're out of breath. Maybe it's dusk. Um, maybe out of, be- out of breath from climbing the Mount of Olives. Um, we know that Jesus is with his 11, sort of the purified church at that point. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that you will unpack this and expose, first of all, as a reminder, the bad fruit of Israel. Secondly, that you'll show us what good fruit looks like. Third, that you'll show us how to get it. And fourth, that you'll show us the result. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that you will just tune us in to such important matters. Thankful for the word, thankful for the role of the Holy Spirit, the work that he does in showing us the truth. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In the name of your son, amen. Go ahead and turn to, um, let's see where I want, actually I'm going to give you a map this morning where I'm going to have you go. I want, unless you're like really super quick with your Bible, uh, where I would like for you to go in this order, Matthew 3. I'm going to other places when I say if you're super quick, you can go to the other places. But these are the key passages. Matthew 3, Galatians 5, Romans 6, and Ephesians 5. Matthew 3. Galatians 5, Romans 6, and Ephesians 5. That's kind of the road map. But I'm going to start in a different place. So while you're turning there, I'm going to share with you a passage from Genesis. Genesis 1 is sort of a template for the rest of the story of the Bible. I didn't appreciate that until I taught through Genesis, the first part of Genesis. Scott's finishing out the rest of Genesis, but especially the first couple of, the first three chapters is really a template for understanding the rest of our Bible. I want to show you this. Just listen to this, if you would. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's the first day. I'm summarizing the first day. 
Verse 4, he says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. That's the second day. And then on the third day, the Lord said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, there, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. As I was finishing up preparation on this message, I, I would planned on beginning right there in that passage, this dealing with the third day, and I realized that in the book of John, the book of John so, sort of starts out like, the book of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It sounds sort of like Genesis chapter 1. And then over the course of the book of John, there's these things that are unpacked that parallel with these days of creation. Really what happened is in the fall, when man sinned, the whole world, us and everything in it, was contaminated with a curse. And you see the work of Christ sort of redeeming those things bringing those things back into alignment in the way they were created in the first place. On day one, let there be light, and there was light. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Beautiful when you see this. On the second day, there's water that's separated from water below and water above. In John chapter 4, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. It's fallen water. But whoever drinks my water will never be thirsty. It will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus develops the fact that he is water. He is the all-satisfying water. In John chapter 7, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, over the course of the Feast of Booths, I can't remember how many days it lasted. But what they did every day of the, the festival, they'd take a big bucket of water. It was a fancy ceremonial or ornamental bowl, and they would go off to the pool of Siloam, and they would gather water, and they would bring it back, and they would put it in this big cistern. And they would do it every single day until they had the big, big mess of water. And on the last day of the festival, the day where Jesus cried out and said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. On that day, and I bet it was at that moment, they take this big cistern full of water and pour it over the altar. Whoosh! And then they thank God for his provision of rain for their crops, water to drink. And it's at that moment, I suspect, I know it's on that day because our Bible tells us that Jesus says, whoever's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see water being redeemed in the person of Jesus Christ. And then when we look at that third day where God creates vegetation and he says, I'm creating a tree, let it bear some fruit. And it bears fruit and he says, this is good. So even that's contaminated as a result of the fall. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, man, he's redeeming that day too. And he's redeeming fallen creation over the course of his work. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. From the very beginning, we have to understand that fruit bearing is a good thing. God made trees to bear fruit, not just so we could have something to gnaw on. Not just so the critters would have, in the woods would have something to eat, but it's because it was going to be shadow to the substance that is the fruit that the people of God are to be bearing that abide in Christ. It's all shadow that points to substance. The shadow of what God expects from his people. But the problem was Israel was planted to bear good fruit, but they prove that the world is in fact fallen. Because even though they're well planted, even though they're well tended to, even though they have walls and hedges and a vine dresser that cares deeply about them, remember from last week, they bear bad, stinking, smelling, sour fruit. They did not produce what God wanted. Matthew chapter 3 provides a great summary of the, na of the condition of the nation of Israel. Let's start there. Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> We're going to understand John 15 via the condition of Israel. <clears throat> 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Remember, God created trees to bear fruit, and he said, this is good. Keep that in mind as we read this passage. John chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, this is John the Baptist. Seeing these guys come out for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's speaking to the best and the brightest and the finest that Israel had to offer. You've got to understand that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would be the poster boys for the best that Israel had to offer. You see the posters with the Marine on there? All Marines don't look like that dude. He's the poster boy. These guys are poster boys for all of Israel. And they're coming out to be baptized, and he calls them a brood of vipers. Essentially, what he's saying, you got bad fruit, fellas. Your fruit is stinking and sour and smelly and wild. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And for these guys, it's repent from that old vine. Repent from this thing that you love more than God himself. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell y'all, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John says, I'm not impressed with the fact that you're related to Abraham. You got bad fruit. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I hope that sounds familiar to you. I hope you see a connection between what John is saying here and what Jesus says on the eve of his crucifixion. The Pharisees and Sadducees are the picture of the old vine. They come for baptism and John the bee declares them unfit. Declares them sour, a brood of vipers. He tells them they need to bear different fruit in keeping with repentance, repentance from that old vine. And then he tells them, man, you're bankrupt. I don't care if you're related to Abraham. Your stuff is bankrupt. And it's close to being cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the backdrop for Jesus saying, I'm the true vine. See, I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to give a warning to this body again. The problem with John 15 is we so easily, we read it just like we read most of our Bible and say, what's this have to do with me? We jump right to Jesus and me without dealing. What is God doing with this story? This story, John 15 and Matthew 3, you've got to appreciate, are dealing with peoples. When John the Baptist is talking to this brood of vipers... He's not saying each of you is a brood of vipers. He's saying y'all. That'd be the southern version of what he's saying there. Y'all are collectively a brood of vipers. And then when Jesus is speaking with the 11 on the night before, their, night before his crucifixion, he's saying y'all there too. He's not saying each of you abide. He's saying y'all abide. That's the thing that I mean, before we continue with this message this morning, and what we may revisit every single week, is this is primarily about people, not about individuals. So as you're sitting here with people in front of you and behind you and beside you, I want you to think about this message going to Crosspoint Fellowship as a people. Think of yourselves relative each other. If you make a beeline to Jesus and me, then you miss out. Right off the bat, hear this message as part of a people. <clears throat> what I want to do this morning in exploring good fruit in these next few minutes is I want to look at some baskets of fruit. I want to look at a couple of baskets of fruit that the nation of Israel had, and then I want to look at the baskets of fruit that God's people should have now. Okay, so, where I want you to go and just kind of camp out is, is let's start with Romans chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm going to share some background for you. <clears throat> some of this is recap from last week. I read it again, and I think, man, I need to hear this again. So if I need to hear it again, and then I think that y'all need to hear it again, don't read Galatians or Romans chapter 6. Just kind of sit there with your finger in your Bible and listen to a couple of baskets of fruit I want to show you. This is the condition of the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, listen. 
The book is summarized in this, this one verse. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. You could say with bad, nasty, stinking, smelling fruit. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They, here, people, groups, a, a nation has forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You could hear that passage and think, man, these guys must have really been up to no good. But let me share this next verse with you. Jesus, our God, says to the nation of Israel, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? You've got to realize they were still very religious, just like the Sadducees and Pharisees. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Not impressed. Not impressed with all this religion you've got to offer me. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You come in for this religion that apparently means a lot to you, but yet you're bathed in iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is the fruit of God's chosen people. Listen to this passage. You have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Let's make a deal, children of foreigners. Let's make a deal with the world. Let's pow with the world is essentially their problem. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. That's the fruit of Israel. And here it's summarized in chapter 5. Listen. Let me sing for my beloved my song, love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. That's the work of the father right there in the nation of Israel. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild, stinking, sour, smelly grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, sour, stinking, smelly grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. Here, the axe is at the base of the tree. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard is the Lord of hosts, is, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but what did he find instead of justice? He found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, and instead of righteousness, He found an outcry. When we look in Israel's basket, like God, we're anticipating there should be really good fruit in there. This is well planted and well tended to. And we put up a watchtower and we dug a vat. And it came from good seed. But yet we look in the basket and instead of justice, we find bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, we find an outcry from those who are not being treated justly. Instead of obedience, we find empty religion and lots of it. Instead of good, we find evil. Instead of care for widows and orphans, we find oppression. Instead of faithfulness, we find whoredom and houses full of stuff from the east, the trappings of the world. That's what's in the basket of Israel. Another picture of Israel's basket. Hosea chapter 10 verse 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And not altars to God. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. 
those monuments to the worship of foreign gods. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. He looked for worship, but instead he found an actual reinvestment into wickedness. I'm going to bless you. And under the shade of my ample trees of blessing, you whore with your neighbors. That's what the nation of Israel did. That's the fruit of those Sadducees and Pharisees as representative of this nation of Israel. They were bankrupt. Our God blessed them and they poured their ample blessings into actually improving their altars to foreign gods. He blessed them and they poured their ample blessings into actual improving their pillars to foreign gods. That's what's in Israel's basket. One passage that comes to mind that just summarizes the condition of Israel comes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. If you want to jot it down, I've got it, so just listen. John writes, he says, Do not love the world. That's what Israel's problem was. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here, the axe is to the base of the tree. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Those things that we're proud about, those things that our, our, our eyes say, I gotta have. Those things that our flesh desires, those things are passing away. But whoever does the will of God here produces good fruit, abides forever. The fruit of the world is stinking and sour like the fruit of Israel. It's that ugly grape at the bottom of the crisper that's been in there six months. It's unidentifiable. It's rank fruit. Some of y'all may have passed by a cross point property the last few days and looked out on the out toward the bank. I think it's that direction. There's a bobcat out there that was dead, big old bobcat. And Scott, uh, Scott's one of the collateral duties is bobcat removal. Um, <laughs> so he got out there this morning, and both of us can attest to the fact that that stunk. And I was thinking about the stench of Israel. And I was thinking about the stench of humankind, and the best that we have to offer is filthy. Israel just gives us a real distinct picture of that. It's not what God wants from his people. Let's look in the baskets of what God should anticipate from us. Romans chapter 6 is where I wanted y'all to be. Let me turn there. <clears throat> this is the, some snapshots of our baskets. Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 22 But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul gives us a couple things that are pictures here where good fruit comes from. It comes from freedom from sin first and slavery to God. Freedom from sin. We've got to realize that before Christ, we could not produce good fruit that wasn't somehow connected to sin. Paul summarized it in Ephesians chapter 2. He's talking to a bunch of Gentiles that didn't know anything about even Yahweh. And he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the ways of the world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And he says, you know what? We too we're also walking according to the flesh. We too, meaning us Jews. Paul's a good Jew. He says, we too were by nature children of wrath, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We need to be freed from sin, just like Israel needed to be freed from sin. The best that they could produce was stinking. The best that the Pharisees and Sadducees had to offer was nasty fruit. They were just as much in the flesh as someone who doesn't even know the Lord. Romans chapter 8 verse 8 tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I made a statement a few weeks ago in a sermon. We cannot please God. And that was in context 
of being in the flesh, that we have to be clothed in the righteousness of another. And someone asked me about that. They caught that one, they got in somebody's car and heard that one sentence and said, we can't please God. I said, oh no, we can as we're clothed in the righteousness of another. But on our own, in our flesh, we cannot please God. The best thing that we have to offer is stinking. Someone who doesn't know Christ might stumble actually on a good deed. But when you take your little fruit knife and you carve it open, it's stinking and rotten inside. Because the motive has everything to do with the fruit. And the motive for an unbeliever, although it might be a good deed, let's care for the needy and the poor and let's do good things and help people. What's at the center of it is likely their own glory and their own pride. And it spoils the fruit altogether. It's not good fruit. It's tainted by pride or ultimately self-worship. Good fruit, though, is a product of freedom from sin and a product of having a whole new master. Paul identifies it here as slavery to God. We'll touch on this later in our message. Now go to Galatians chapter 5. This is the, the... Second good basket we're going to look at. That actually there's two baskets here. We're going to look at both of them. Just imagine two baskets sitting in front of you. Two piles of fruit in each basket. I better get on my page. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 16. Paul writes to the church at Galatia and he says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now listen, here's the first basket. This could be Israel's basket. It could be fallen Gentiles' baskets before Christ. It could be your basket before Christ. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Sensuality would be um, just being driven by what feels good. Like a guy saying, man, I want to move in with this girl because it just feels right. And it just makes sense. I, I'm just going to do it. it just, and in fact, I think God is approving because I feel so good about it. Sensuality is going to be driven by your senses. Idolatry. That's also a picture of idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those with baskets of fruit like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. The axe is at the base of the tree. It's going to get cut down. That's bankrupt fruit. That's the first basket. Here's the second one. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Two baskets of fruit here. Two contrasting baskets. Basket one is the works of the flesh. Basket two is the fruit of the Spirit. And let me tell you this. If you want to know if you're in Christ, if you want to have a sense, if the Lord is a part of your life, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling your life, if you are not over the course of time being key, diminishing in basket one and growing in basket two, then you have to wonder if you even have the Holy Spirit. Because this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage, too, I want to encourage honesty with these lists. No one, hear me, no one is void of list one. And no one is completely full of list two. The only one who ever was and only ever one who ever will be is our Lord and Savior. Absolutely void of list one and completely full of, of the second list. Turn to Matthew 3. We're going to refer back to this Galatians passage a couple times, but turn to Matthew 3 for now. It's a passage we read earlier this morning. We're going to draw out one picture. We're looking at baskets of fruit. The first good basket of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the next good basket of fruit. 
Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist tells these guys, these Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's probably where I've spent the most time this week, on a personal level and as preparing for this sermon. That there's actually a fruit that's born that's in keeping with repentance. There's actually a fruit that comes from repentance. Good fruit is actually a product of repentance. In this case, it's repent from the old system. Repent from your love for the old system and your love for the law and your love for these things that you've added to the law. Repent from those ways and be ready to accept and embrace the new vine. In our case, repentance comes from the Holy Spirit working your life to show you two things. Your desperate condition, i.e., Basket one. I told you to be really honest with the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And if I hope if you were honest about that, then you had to have looked down that list of the first fruits in that first basket and swallowed hard and go, oh, I still have some of those fruits. Product of repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives showing us two things. Our desperate condition, the continued presence of basket one in our lives, and God's best for you, the burden and need and desire for basket two. Repentance comes from a repulsion and revulsion, and I cannot stand the thought of list one and basket one and seeing those sort of things in my life, my life, those natural ways and those tendencies combined with a deep longing, deep life-altering desire to be what's in keeping with your adoption as sons. A repulsion at that first basket and an eager desire for the second basket. There's another fruit that comes from that. It's the fruit of repentance. The problem is with the Jews, they were relying on their heritage and their ability to obey the law. (laughs) The spirit of it, or the, the, the letter of it, not the spirit of it. Collectively, they weren't broken before God, repenting from stinking fruit. I'm reading a book right now with Scott and the rest of the staff. I'm a little bit behind them. They talked about this a few weeks ago. But this guy, it's called When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. He developed what I'm talking about right here. Listen to what he says. He says, we concentrate on actions. This could describe the Pharisees and Sadducees, and it can also describe Ben McGraw. We concentrate on actions and overlook attitudes. By doing this, our sinful nature can give us the sense that we're okay. We've not killed anybody today. We've not been adulterous. We've not stolen anything from the store. Therefore, we had a good day. Better yet, we are good Of course, we occasionally do bad things. We might yell too loudly or we might pick up some porn at the airport. In these cases, we should ask God's forgiveness. But on the whole, we tend to be fairly good. And if we think we're usually good, then guess what? God is usually irrelevant. We think, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy who occasionally does bad things. And such thinking, this guy says, ignores the depths of sin in my own heart. And in essence, it elevates me so that I'm just a mildly flawed imitation of God rather than someone completely dependent on Him. Fear of the Lord in that case is impossible. I read that. I said, man, that's the attitude of the Pharisees and that's the attitude of Ben McGraw sometimes. And there's no fruit that comes from that because that's not repentance. If anything, that describes the the parable of the two guys praying. One's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. That describes the prayer of the Pharisee. They're saying, God, yeah, I'm doing you a favor being on your team. I sure am glad I'm not like that joker. Look how good I am. That's the bankruptcy of the nation of Israel. The bankruptcy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's the human bankruptcy. I don't really know how anyone could think they're okay with God. I don't know how anyone could really think that they're a good person relative God. And that's where the standard is. 
I think the place that we get into where we think we're okay is when we're comparing ourselves horizontally because you will always find somebody sorrier than you. You may catch them on a bad day and find somebody extremely sorry and then feel really good about yourself like the Pharisee and the tax collector. At least I'm not like that joker. Look at him beat his breast. He must have done something really bad. Where I camped out this week is I camped out on this because I'm going, man, there's a sweet fruit that comes from repentance. Instead of seeing ourselves relative God, we compare ourselves relative dirty man, and you can always find somebody dirtier than you. That's what the Sadducees did and the Pharisees did, and there's no fruit that comes from that. Really, the fruit that comes from that is pride and wickedness and mean-spirited churches. I don't know why some Christians are never broken or contrite. I don't know how you get there. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As I'm sitting here looking at the works of the flesh, I'm thinking to myself, man, how easy is it to do those things? I'm looking at them going, man, that is especially familiar. That stuff in that basket is frighteningly familiar. Impurity, idolatry, jealousy, fits of anger, envy. I'm going to share a little bit about myself, which, you know, this will actually go to my last point. I struggle with Facebook sometimes. And here's my struggle. It's so small. It reveals how small I am. Sometimes I put a comment on Facebook that I feel like is really profound and I want to see a bunch of people respond to. And then other people could put a comment on there like cardboard and have 100 people respond to it. <laughs> Cardboard's great. It's so corrugated. <laughs> I love cardboard. I use it for everything. I'm like, man, does anybody care about how profound what I put on there? Isn't that sad? It's embarrassing. We can laugh about that one. You may not laugh about this one. This is where I spent the week is dealing with idolatry. You know how easy it is to be an idolater? Where I spent the week this week was expecting of my wife what I should be looking for from God. Expecting my wife to make me happy. Expecting Christy to make me feel good about myself. Expecting Christy to just worship me. Not worship necessarily. But look to me like, almost like she should look to God. That's idolatry. That's looking. Idolatry is looking to anything to make you happy, to make you satisfied in place of God. And here's how you know if it's in place of God. If it gets removed and you go berserk. That's an, that's an idol. We had a family meeting Saturday morning, and I talked. I, I asked the kids. I said, hey, uh, kids, how are things at home? How, how are the McGraws doing? And they kind of got real quiet. <laughs> and they said, well, we know you and, you and Mommy are mad at each other. And I was like, how did, I'm thinking, how did y'all know that? Because we weren't yelling at each other. I mean, we just weren't talking to each other. But man, they were tuned into it. And we sat as a family yesterday and talked about idolatry. And I confessed to them and I repent before them and I repent before you and I repent in front of my wife expecting her to make me happy. Expecting her to fulfill me. That's idolatry. I look at the fruit in that basket and I go, man, how could anybody be proud? How could any Christian be proud? Is anybody free of those things? Does anybody not have some stinking fruit? I'm thinking, man, there's a sweet fruit that comes from repentance. I don't know how anybody in the church could ever be defensive or unteachable or unsearchable. Because we've all got bad, nasty fruit. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. There's a sweet fruit that comes from repentance. The last basket I want to look at this morning is in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. 
beginning in verse 7. Paul writes, Therefore, do not associate with them. Them would be the sons of disobedience in the verse before. Do not associate with the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness. It's the same guys that he earlier said you were dead in your trespasses and sins before Christ. You at one time were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't say you're like light. He doesn't say you're lightish. He says you are light. You're actual light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There's a good fruit, a big basket of sweet fruit that comes from walking as children of the light. Here he says they are light. So the believer radiates the light that they actually are in the Lord. John Stott had a cool phrase. He said, we are to live like men who are at home in daylight. This is hard to do. One of my treasures is my Bible, or a Bible that was given to me, belonged to my granddaddy. I never met him. He died when I was a baby. This Bible means a lot to me. In the front of it, he has his New Year's resolutions for 1950, and one of those to be the same man at home that he is at church. Seemed like an easy one. How many people are? Church is so often the place that we are least authentic. It's the place where you might see a thin sliver of who this guy or this family really is. But I've been burdened for a long time that those kids would see the same man that sits here and preaches as the same knucklehead that idolizes their mom and is willing to confess it. I think that's walking as children in the light. There's a sweet fruit that comes from that. It's the fruit that the people of God should bear. I'll not forget, I don't know that I'll ever forget Brad's sermon a long time ago from 1 John. Listen to this passage. Don't turn, just listen. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's good fruit. Walking as children of light, that's good fruit right there. Fellowship with one another and being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I'll take that fruit. Walking as children of light. There's an opposite fruit walking in the darkness. That opposite fruit actually results in a root of bitterness. It happens so often where people will not shoot straight with you, where people will not be honest with you. They'll talk to everybody else about how hacked they are at you. Are at me. Whenever somebody comes to me because they have a gripe with somebody else, I'm like, have you gone to them? That's step one. Come to me if y'all can't resolve it. We're to walk as children of light. Let's go shoot lovingly straight with each other. Let's be lovingly genuine and authentic with each other. When somebody's hurt you, go to that person and try and reconcile it. You keep it in the dark, you're not walking as children of light. And the fruit of that is bitterness. You can have it. It's liberating dragging stuff into the light. It's fruitful. There's a fruit produced when the people of God live openly and transparently, joyfully in the presence of Christ, needy and dependent on Christ, With nothing to hide or fear, there's a sweet fruit that comes from that. How do you get fruit? That's where I want to go in these next couple minutes. How do you get it? First of all, it's the work of the vine dresser. 
In John chapter 14, he deals with a couple things that we're going to deal with in the next couple weeks. Cutting branches away and pruning branches. We're not going to deal with those this morning. But those things yield more fruit. But I want to deal with the part that we play. Go back and just have John 14 in front of you just so you can see this. John 15, excuse me. Now, as you're turning there, what do you think about this? If a vine could have a consciousness, that'd be kind of weird. Or a tree had a consciousness, that'd be kind of weird. I mean, we, they do that in the movies with dogs. You know, create this little story with dogs and make them, their mouths move and stuff. Well, imagine that a vine could actually have a consciousness. I'll tell you that a productive vine that actually has a consciousness, if we can imagine that for a minute, would not be focused on the branches and a desire to squeeze out good fruit. The vine, in order, if he's a smart vine, if he's a wise vine, is not going to focus on mm, trying to squeeze out good fruit. The vine is going to look back at what it's connected to. If a branch had a consciousness, it's going to focus on what it's actually connected to. That's the picture of abiding. It's focusing on what makes good fruit in the life of the believer. And that is good nourishment. Abiding is mentioned 10 times that I counted, and I may have missed one or two in this passage. Abide in me, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And then on to verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's going to mention something 10 times in 10 verses, in hours before he's nailed to a cross. We could take some time to consider it. What is that? What is abiding? The NIV renders it remains. He who remains in me. Abides. I like abide because it's kind of a different word. You can consider the imagery of a relative or a, a branch, relative a vine. You, you never really tell how they're disconnected, or you don't tell where one leaves off and one begins. You might see a fork, and you might call this a branch, and you might call this a vine. But if you really look at it and examine it, they all look like they're part of the same substance. They both share the same bark. They both share the same system. Just considering the imagery of a vine relative branch, it's hard to really tell where the vine leaves off and the branch begins. They're so intertwined. They're so, hear these words, interconnected. They're so interpenetrating. They're so interinvolved. You can't tell what's vine and what's branch. Remember our word from a few months ago, perichoresis? That's what it means to abide. It's living within the supreme fruit bearer. It's climbing into his basket daily. Seeing his basket absolutely void of list one. And absolutely full of list two. The fruit of the Spirit. Thinking about this word abiding, I don't really have any other picture for you of abiding other than to be absolutely and completely consumed with Christ. I wanted to say this just as plainly and simply as possible. Abiding means to be absolutely and completely consumed with Christ. It means to be infatuated with Christ. It means to be intoxicated with Christ. Inundated, saturated, immersed enthralled in who he is and what he's done. That picture that I mentioned in Romans chapter 6, 22, of actually slavery to God resulting in fruit, actually having a new master, that's a good picture of abiding. If you can imagine what slavery looks like. To be slave to someone means that everything that you are and everything that you do is relative your master. 
Paul mentioned it all over our New Testaments, referring to himself as slave and servant, and referring to the people of God as slaves and servants. If you want to know what abiding looks like, it looks like slavery. It looks like being a servant. You have a new identity. You have a new purpose. You think and live like a slave, absolutely consumed with your master. I'm going to tell you this too. Abiding is not dabbling. Abiding is not tinkering. Abiding is not trifling. Abiding is not grabbing him when you need to pick me up. Abiding is not reaching out for him like he's your life coach to just improve your current situation. That's not abiding. Abiding means he is your all-encompassing heir. Nothing here, nothing competes with him. Abiding means that you are absolutely consumed with all he is and all he's done, and it invades every single area of your life. There are no compartments. If you look at your life right now and you have compartments that are off limits to Christ, you have work to do and growth to take place in your life in the area of abiding. I have to tell you, as I mentioned this, that I am baffled with those who have no time for the people of God. I'm baffled at the thought and the notion of loving Jesus as Savior and Lord, of being a branch that's abiding in the vine, professing that, but being so compartmental with our time. I've got too much going on to be part of a small group, for example. I've got too much going on to gather with the people of God. I'll give you Sunday morning. I'm going to tell you that right now. That's not abiding. That's dabbling. You can be a sincere dabbler. And I love you as I'm calling you that. If you've got no time for the people of God, you've got no time to dwell within the vine. Because remember I told you in the beginning, this whole thing is about y'all. If you're reading John 15 like an individual, you've missed it right off the bat. You abide together. You abide in community. Man, I, I know that can seem harsh and strong and raw. He called me a dabbler. I love you as I'm saying that. We've got to be part of the people of God. I cannot approve of moderation or temperance in Christ. We are to be a moderate and temperate people, but I cannot approve of that in Christ. There's no such thing. Moderation and temperance in Christ is unthinkable. It doesn't reconcile with slavery. It doesn't reconcile with being his servant. Abiding fits with words like worship. Think about a guy, you know, you're describing at work, man, this dude, he's like, worships golf what's the imagery there homeboy's tanned right he's tanned like he got that that golfer's tan from his polo shirt and every time you see him he's either going to the golf course or from the golf course or you drive by the golf course and there he is worship is worship When you say you worship Christ, then worship Christ. Abide in Him. Be consumed with Him. Captivated with Him. Enthralled with Him. Immersed into Him. Inundated with Him. Abiding fits with words like Lord. To actually call Him Lord means that He owns every compartment. It means you don't have areas that are off limits or time slots that are off limits. I'm sorry. This is more important than that. There's no such thing. Abiding fits with words like cross. It fits with words like blood. It fits with words like nails. Abiding fits with images like hands that are placed on plows and heads that are unwilling to turn around and look back. That's abiding. There are no shortcuts. There are no cliff notes. Fruit comes from abiding. That's what he's, if you want to summarize John 15, fruit comes from abiding. So abide. 
We can make a new bumper sticker. Fruit happens. <laughs> Be good. Fruit happens when you abide. What's the sweet outcome of this? John chapter 15, verse 8. It says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The sweet outcome is that God is actually glorified as we bear fruit. The same God that created the trees so that they would bear fruit. The same God that's spoken life and hope and truth into our life so that we can see Christ as Savior and Lord. And the outcome should be fruit. It brings glory to God. It just fits. It just works. It just makes absolute and complete sense. I'll share with you one passage and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. It says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work pleases God. It's doing what we were made to do. It's something that should matter to us. Something that should burden us. I'm going to share a passage in Zechariah before we take our Lord's Supper. The band, you guys can come on up. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 10 Verse 6 and 7 says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. That's key. Their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> as we take the Lord's Supper together, I, I know full well, and you probably know, <clears throat> that this is just juice. I know we're in a weird context to point this out. Lots of warnings in our Bible about alcohol and the misuse of it. But there's also lots of pictures in our Bible that talk about wine making the heart glad. Now think about this being a product of fruit. As we take this cup, this representation of the product of fruit, we're enjoying the product of the fruit of our Lord. We're enjoying the product of his finished work. And we're acknowledging the reality that our basket number one will always have some bad fruit in it. But his is empty. And our basket number two will always have some, some holes, some spots that need filling. But his basket number two is full to overflowing. It's making our heart glad as we consider that. As we take the Lord's Supper, keep this in mind today. Probably the hardest thing for me um, preparing to preach passages like John 15 is they so easily become a to-do list and so easily become and just bear good fruit thing that just becomes a works thing. I mean, we could create a bunch of Pharisees in a passage that's exposing the bankruptcy of the Pharisees. Crazy. So we have to be conscious, mindful of what we're doing when we take this cup, for example, it's, it's a little micro version of what we're doing all week long as we're enjoying the fruit of another. It's in looking at your basket and going, ugh, I'm bankrupt. I need Jesus. I need lots of blood. And you're enjoying that blood. And you look back and over time, he's changing your basket. That's abiding. And that's, man, it wrecks you. But it blesses you. It's hard and it's easy. It's this, these, all these things happening. You can't box it up. You can't, it's not tidy. That's, man, I don't know. Maybe over the course of this John 15, he'll expose to us to the point where it is tidy. But right now, it's not. 
It's just a journey. And it's hard and it's easy and it's good and it's tough. And we just do it. And all the while with our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that sat before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's who we enjoy. That's called worship. Being a good boy is not worship. Being a worshiper is worship. Marveling at his finished work. Thankful for his righteousness that we're clothed in. Putting it on every day. I need some blood. That's worship. Let's enjoy the fruit of his righteousness. God, you're so good. We are so thankful that you uh, are a father that welcomes back the prodigal. And... um, Lord, we come clothed in the righteousness of your Son. Lord, I pray the result of uh, messages like this, these difficult uh, messages from John 15, that you will make in us uh, stronger, truer, more potent, more committed worshipers who have a more accurate view of our need for a Savior, have a better view of the distance that grace had to reach, who marvel at your grace and mercy that you would be mindful of us. I just pray you'll work those things in us in that, in that untidy journey that we're on. I'm thankful that we go with, with other branches. Lord, I pray for those branches that might be trying to survive on their own. Lord, I beg, beg, that you'll work in those individuals a willingness to be known and knowing and connected. A burden for those who are trying to do this by themselves. Lord, I'm burdened for those who have you cordoned off into a tiny little space. I pray that you will invade and take over and consume. pray that you'll continue to grow us all in this sweet work of abiding. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful, thankful for the fruit of our son, or your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.